Section 7 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I Until the Death of Alexander III, 1825-1894, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. Chapter 15, The Jews in the Kingdom of Poland. Part 1. 1. Plans of Jewish Emancipation Special mention must be made of the position occupied by the Jews in the vast province which had been formed in 1815 out of the territory of the former Duchy of Warsaw and annexed by Russia under the name of Kingdom of Poland. This province, which from 1815 to 1830 enjoyed full autonomy with the local government in Warsaw and the parliamentary constitution, handled the affairs of its large Jewish population, numbering between 300 to 400,000 souls, independently and without regard to the legislation of the Russian Empire. Even after the insurrection of 1830, when subdued Poland was linked more closely with the empire, the Jews continued to be subject to a separate provincial legislation. The Jews of the kingdom remained under the tutelage of local guardians who were assiduously engaged in solving the Jewish problem during the first part of this period. The initial years of autonomous Poland were a time of storm and stress. After having experienced the vicissitude of the period of partitions, and the hopes and disappointment of the Napoleonic era, the Polish people clutched eagerly at the shreds of political freedom which were left to it by Alexander I in the shape of the Constitutional Regulation of 1815. The Poles brought to bear upon the upbuilding of the new kingdom all the ardor of the national soul and all their enthusiasm for political regeneration. The feverish organizing activity between 1815 and 1820 was attended by a violent outburst of national sentiment, and such moments of enthusiasm were always accompanied in Poland by an intolerant and unfriendly attitude towards the Jews. With a few shining exceptions, the Polish statesmen were far removed from the idea of Jewish emancipation. They favored either correctional or punitive method, though modeled after the pattern of Western European, rather than of primitive Russian anti-Semitism. In 1815, the provisional government in Warsaw appointed a special committee under the chairmanship of Count Adam Czartoryski to consider the agrarian and the Jewish problem. The committee drew up a general plan of Jewish reorganization, which was marked by the spirit of enlightened patronage. In theory, the committee was ready to concede to the Jews human and civil rights, even to the point of considering the necessity of their final emancipation. But in view of the ignorance, the prejudices, and the moral corruption to be observed among the lower classes of the Jewish and the Polish people, the patrician members of the committee in charge of the agrarian and Jewish problem 
accorded an equal share of compliments to the Jews and the Polish peasants, immediate emancipation was, in their opinion, bound to prove harmful, since it would confer upon the Jews freedom of action to the detriment of the country. It was therefore necessary to demand, as a prerequisite for Jewish emancipation, the improvement of the Jewish masses, which was to be effected by removal from the injurious liquor trade and inducement to engage in agriculture, by abolishing the kahals, i.e. their communal autonomy, and by changing the Jewish school system to meet the civic requirements. In order to gain the confidence of the Jews for the proposed reforms, the committee suggested that the government should invite the enlightened representatives of the Jewish people to participate in the discussion of the project measures of reform. Turning their eyes toward the West, where Jewish assimilation had already begun its course, the Polish committee decided to approach the Jewish reformer David Friedlander of Berlin, who was, so to speak, the official philosopher of Jewish emancipation, and to solicit his opinion concerning the ways and means of bringing about a reorganization of Jewish life in Poland. The Bishop of Kuyavia, Malczewski, addressed himself in the name of the Polish government to Friedlander, calling upon him a pupil of Mendelssohn, the educator of Jewry, to state his views on the proposed Jewish reforms in Poland. Flattered by this invitation, Friedlander hastened to compose an elaborate opinion on the improvement of the Jews in the Kingdom of Poland. According to Friedlander, the Polish Jews had, in point of culture, remained far beyond their Western co-religionists because their progress had been hampered by their Talmudic training, the pernicious doctrine of Hasidism, and the self-government of their kahals. All these influences ought, therefore, to be combated. The Jewish school should be brought into closer contact with the Polish school. The Hebrew language should be replaced by the language of the country, and altogether assimilation and religious reform should be encouraged. While promoting religious and cultural reforms, the government, in the opinion of Friedlander, ought to confirm the Jews in the belief that they would receive in time civil rights if they were to endeavor to perfect themselves in the spirit of the regulation issued for them. This flunkish notion of the necessity of deserving civil rights coincided with the views of the official Polish committee in Warsaw. Soon afterwards, a memorandum prepared by the committee was submitted through its chairman, Count Czartoryski, to the Polish viceroy Zajoncek. Formerly a comrade of Kosciuszko, Zajoncek later turned from a revolutionary into reactionary, who was anxious to curry favor with the supreme commander of the province, Grand Duke Konstantin Pavlovich. No wonder, therefore, that the plan of the committee, conservative though it was, seemed too liberal for his liking. In his report to Emperor Alexander I, dated March 8, 1816, he wrote as follows. The growth of the Jewish population in your kingdom of Poland is becoming a menace. 
1790, they formed here a thirteenth part of the whole population. Today, they form no less than an eighth. Sober and resourceful, they are satisfied with little. They earn their livelihood by cheating, and owing to early marriages, multiply beyond measure. Shunning hard labor, they produce nothing themselves and live only at the expense of the working classes which they help to ruin. Their peculiar institutions keep them apart within the state, marking them as a foreign nationality, and as a result, they are unable in their present condition to furnish the state either with good citizens or with capable soldiers. Unless means are adopted to utilize for the commonweal the useful qualities of the Jews, they will soon exhaust all sources of the national wealth and will threaten to surpass and suppress the Christian population. In the same year, 1816, a scheme looking to the solution of the Jewish question was proposed by the Russian statesman Nicholas Novosiltsev, the imperial commissioner attached to the provincial government in Warsaw. Novosiltsev, who was not sympathetic to the Poles, showed himself in his project to be a friend of the Jews. Instead of the principle laid down by the official committee, correction first and civil rights last, he suggests another more liberal procedure, the immediate bestowal of civil and in part even political rights upon the Jews, to be accompanied by a reorganization of Jewish life along the lines of European progress and the modernized scheme of autonomy. All communal and cultural affairs shall be put in charge of directorates, one central directorate in Warsaw, and local ones in every province of the kingdom, after the pattern of the Jewish consistories of France. These directorates shall be composed of rabbis, elders of the community, and a commissioner representing the government. In the central directorate, this commissioner shall be replaced by a procurator to be appointed directly by the king. This whole organization shall be placed under the jurisdiction of the Minister of Public Instruction, who shall also exercise the right of confirming the rabbis nominated by the directorates. The functions of the directorates shall include the registration of the Jewish population, the management of the communal finances, the dispensation of charity, and the opening of secular schools for Jewish children. A certificate of graduation from such a school shall be required from every young man who applies for a marriage license or for a permit to engage in a craft or to acquire property. All Jews fulfilling the obligations imposed by the present statute shall be accorded full citizenship, while those who distinguish themselves in science and art may even be deemed worthy of political rights, not excluding membership in the Polish Diet. For the immediate future, Novosiltsev advises to refrain from economic restrictions such as the prohibition of the liquor traffic, though he concedes the advisability of checking its growth and advocates the adoption of a system of economic reforms 
by stimulating crops and agriculture among the Jews. In the beginning of 1817, Novosiltsev's project was laid before the Polish Council of State. It was opposed with great stubbornness by Czartoryski, the Polish viceroy Zajoncek, Stasitz, and other Polish dignitaries, whose hostility was directed not so much against the pro-Jewish plan as against its Russian author. The Council of State appointed a special committee, which, after examining Novosiltsev's project, arrived at the following conclusions. 1. It is impossible to carry out a reorganization of Jewish life through the Jews themselves. 2. The establishment of a separate cultural organization for the Jews will only stimulate their national aloofness. 3. The complete civil and political emancipation of the Jews is at variance with the Polish constitution, which vouchsafes special privileges to the professors of the dominant religion. In the plenary session of the Polish Council of State, the debate about Novosiltsev's project was exceedingly stormy. The Polish members of the Council centered in the project political aims in opposition to the national elements of the country. They emphasized the danger which the immediate emancipation of the Jews would entail for Poland. Let the Jews first become real Poles, exclaimed the referee Kozmian, then will it be possible to look upon them as citizens. When the same gentleman declared that it was impossible to accord citizenship to hordes of people, who first had to be accustomed to cleanliness and cured from leprosy and similar diseases, Zayoncek burst out laughing and shouted, Here, here, these slut won't get rid of their scabs so easily. After such elevating criticism, Novosiltsev's project was voted down. The council inclined to the belief that the psychological moment for bringing about a radical reorganization of the inner life of the Jews had not yet arrived, and therefore resolved to limit itself to isolated measures, principally of a correctional and repressive character. 2. Political reaction and literary anti-Semitism Such measures were not long in coming. The only restriction the government of Warsaw failed to carry through was the enforcement of the law of 1812, forbidding the Jews to deal in liquor. This drastic measure was vetoed by Alexander I, owing to the representations of the Jewish deputies in St. Petersburg, and in 1816, the Polish viceroy was compelled to announce the suspension of this cruel law which had hung like the sword of Democles over the heads of hundreds of thousands of Jews. On the other hand, the Polish government managed in the course of a few years, 1816 to 1823, to put into operation a number of other restrictive laws. Several cities which boasted the ancient right to non-tolerandist Judaism secured the confirmation of this shameful privilege with the result that the Jews who had settled there during the existence of the Duchy of Warsaw 
were either expelled or confined to separate districts. In Warsaw, a number of streets were closed to Jewish residents, and all Jewish visitors to the capital were forced to pay a heavy tax for their right of sojourn, the so-called ticket impost, amounting to 15 kopecks, seven and a half cents a day. Finally, the Jews were forbidden to settle within 21 versts of the Austrian and Prussian frontiers. At the same time, the Polish legislators were fair-minded enough to refrain from forcing the Jews, these disfranchised barriers, into military service. In 1817, an announcement was made to the effect that so long as the Jews were barred from the enjoyment of civil rights, they would be released from personal military service in Poland, in lieu whereof they were to pay a fixed conscription tax. About the same time, during the third decade of 19th century, was also realized the old-time policy of curtailing the Jewish Kahal autonomy, though, as will be seen later, this reform did not proceed from the government spheres, but was rather the product of contemporary social movements among the Poles and the Jews. The political literature of Poland manifested at that time a tendency similar to the one which had prevailed during the Quadrennial Diet. Scores of pamphlets and magazine articles discussed with polemic ardor the Jewish problem, the burning question of the day. The old Jewish painter Stasitz, a member of the Warsaw government who served on the Commission of Public Instruction and Religious Denominations, resumed his attacks on Judaism. In 1816, he published an article under the title of Concerning the Causes of the Obnoxiousness of the Jews, in which he asserted that the Jews were responsible for Poland's decline. They multiplied with incredible rapidity, forming now no less than an eighth of the population. Should this process continue, the Kingdom of Poland would be turned into a Jewish country and become the laughingstock of the whole of Europe. The Jewish religion is antagonistic to Catholicism. We call them Old Testament believers, while they brand us as pagans. It being impossible to expel the Jews from Poland, they ought to be isolated like carriers of disease. They should be concentrated in separate quarters in the cities to facilitate the supervision over them. Only well-deserving merchants and craftsmen who have plied their trade honestly for five or ten years, should be allowed to reside outside the ghetto. The same category of Jews, in addition to those married to Christian women, should also be granted the right of acquiring landed property. The ghetto on the one end of the line, and baptism on the other, this medieval policy, did not in the least abash the patriotic reformers of the type of Stasitz. Stasitz's point of view was supported by certain publicists and opposed by others, but all were agreed on the necessity of a system of correction for the Jews. 
the discussion became particularly heated in 1818 after the convocation and during the sessions of the first Polish Diet in Warsaw. Three different tendencies asserted themselves, a moderate, an anti-Jewish, and a pro-Jewish tendency. The first was represented by General Vincent Krasinski, a member of the Diet. In his observations on the Jews of Poland, he proceeds from the following twofold premise. The voice of the whole nation is raised against the Jews, and it demands their transformation. This titled publicist declares himself an opponent of the Jews as they are at present. He shares the popular dread of their multiplication, the fear of a Jewish Poland, and is somewhat skeptical about their being corrigible. Nevertheless, he proposes a liberal method of correction, such as the encouragement of big Jewish capital, the promotion of agriculture and handicraft among the Jewish masses, and the bestowal of the rights of citizenship upon those worthy of it. Krasinski was attacked by an anonymous writer in an anti-Semitic pamphlet entitled A Remedy Against the Jews. Proceeding from the conviction that no reforms, however well conceived, could have any effect on the Jews, the writer puts the question in a simplified form. Shall we sacrifice the welfare of 3 million Poles to that of 300,000 Jews, or vice versa? His answer is just as simple. The Jews should be forced to leave Poland. Emperor Alexander I, the benefactor of Poland, ought to be petitioned to rid the country of the Jews by transferring them to the uninhabited steppes in the south of Russia or even on the borders of Great Tartary. The 300,000 Jews might be divided into 300 parties and settled there in the course of one year. The means for expelling and settling the Jews should be furnished by the Jews themselves. This barbarous project aroused the ire of a noble-minded Polish army officer, Valerian Lukasinski, a radical in politics, who subsequently landed in the dungeon of the Schlüsselburg fortress. In his reflections of an army officer concerning the needs of organizing the Jews, published in 1818, Lukasinski advances the thought that the oppression and disfranchisement of the Jews are alone responsible for their demoralized condition. They were useful citizens in the golden age of Casimir the Great and Sigismund the Old, when they were treated with kindness. The order lashes the hypocrisy of the Shlachta, who holds the Jews to account for ruining the peasant by selling them alcohol in those very taverns which are leased to them by the noble pans. Lukasinski contends that the Jews will become good citizens once they will be allowed to participate in the civil life of Poland when that life will be founded on democratic principles. The choir of Polish voice was but faintly disturbed by the opinions expressed by the Jews. An otherwise unknown rabbi who calls himself Moses ben Abraham echoes in his pamphlet, The Voice of the People of Israel, 
the sentiments of Jewish orthodoxy. He begs the Poles not to meddle in the inner affairs of Judaism. You refuse to recognize us as brothers, then at least respect us as fathers. Look at your genealogical tree with the branches of New Testament, and you will find the root in us. Polish culture cannot be foisted upon the Jews. Barbarous as may appear the plan of expelling the Jews from Poland, the persecuted tribe will rather submit to this alternative than renounce its faith and its ancestral customs. The views of the progressive Jews of Poland were voiced by a young pedagogue in Warsaw, subsequently the well-known champion of assimilation, Jacob Tugenhold. In a treaty entitled Jerubal or World Concerning the Jews, Tugenhold contends that the Jews have already begun to assimilate themselves to Polish culture. It was now within the power of the government to strengthen this movement by admitting distinguished Jews to civil service. While this literary feud concerning the problem of Judaism was raging, an unhealthy movement against the Jews started among the dregs of the Polish population. In several localities of the kingdom, there suddenly appeared victims of ritual murder in the shape of dead bodies of children, the discovery of which was followed by a series of legal trials against the Jews, 1815 to 1816. Innocent people were thrown into prison, where they languished for years and were subjected to cross-examinations, though without the inquisitorial apparatus of ancient Poland. It is impossible to say whither this orgy of superstition might have led, had it not been stopped by a word of command from St. Petersburg. In 1817, as a result of the energetic representations of the deputies of the Jewish people, Sonnenberg and his fellow workers, the Minister of Ecclesiastic Affairs, Golitsyn, gave orders that the UK's which had just been issued by him, forbidding the arbitrary injection of a ritual element into criminal cases, be strictly enforced in the Kingdom of Poland. This action saved the lives of scores of prisoners and put a stop to the obscure agitation which endeavored to revive the medieval specter. The Polish Diet of 1818 reflected the same state of mind which had previously found expression in political literature, an unmistakable preponderance of the anti-Jewish element. Some of the deputies appealed to Alexander I in their speeches and openly called upon him to give orders to lay before the next session of the Diet a project of Jewish reform with a view to saving Poland from the excessive growth of the Hebrew tribe, which now formed a seventh of all the inhabitants, and in a few years will surpass in the numbers the Christian population of the country. For the immediate future, the deputies recommend the enforcement of the suspended law barring the Jews from the liquor traffic and their subjection to military conscription. 
one might have thought that the Diet had no need of extra measures to curb the Jews. It was quite enough that it tacitly sanctioned the prolongation of the ten years' term of Jewish rightlessness, which had been fixed by the government of the Varsovian Dutch in 1808. This term ended in 1818, while the first Diet of the Kingdom of Poland was holding its sessions, but neither the Polish Diet nor the Polish Council of State gave any serious thought to the question whether the government of the province had the right to prolong the disfranchisement of the Jews. This right was taken for granted by the Polish legislators who were planning even harsher restrictions for the unloved tribe of Hebrews. End of section 7